You're listening to Hematopoiesis, a new podcast by the American Society of Hematology Trainee Council. In 2020, the ASH Trainee Council embarked on a mission to create a new online platform for hematology trainees that represents the entire diverse spectrum of budding hematologists from medical students to residents to fellows and doctoral students. With this new podcast, which is entirely curated and produced by the ASH Trainee Council, we hope to bring exciting educational and career-focused hematology content to you and the community of hematology trainees around the globe. I am Dr. Lachelle Dawn Weeks, former chair of the Trainee Council and hematologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thank you for tuning in to this special three-part series of the ASH Trainee Podcast, Hematopoiesis. In this short series, we're exploring the history of blood transfusion, the most common medical procedure performed worldwide. In our first episode, Blood Transfusion's Mystical Vitality, we discuss the early magic of blood and blood transfusions and how the practice morphed from a therapy to calm a madman into a procedure to resuscitate the hemorrhaging. If you missed it, pause this episode, go back and take a listen. Today, in part two, we travel further through time and into the 20th century. Stay tuned for blood transfusions, life-saving practice in times of war. By the mid 19th century, The field that would become transfusion medicine was starting to take form. Early transfusionists had experimented enough with xenotransfusion to fully abandon the practice of using dogs, sheep, and other animals as blood donors for humans. James Blundell had designed tools for blood transfusion, such as the impeller. One of the stories we told to wrap up episode one was of George Furman, a young boy who had hemophilia and received a life-saving transfusion from a young woman using a Blundell-style transfusion device. Additional details from the description of that transfusion highlights one of the major obstacles faced by early transfusionists, coagulation. Lane wrote, after the young woman had lost 10 to 12 ounces of blood, it began to flow more slowly from her arm. And he was describing the healthy blood donor's own coagulation system kicking in to clot off the area of her arm that had been cut down. Coagulation and the inability to store blood as well as the more than occasional hemolytic transfusion reaction due to blood type incompatibility were some of the major issues facing transfusionists as we rolled into the 20th century. I continued my conversation about this and other aspects of transfusion history with Douglas Starr, professor emeritus of journalism at Boston University and author of Blood, an Epic History of Medicine and Commerce. So again, I'm talking about a very slow turn of about a century from the 1820s to World War One, and a few things happened. Number one was just the notion of blood transfusion began to pick up. So even before World War One, people were starting to do direct transfusions in which they would actually stitch the artery of the donor into the vein of the recipient, which is terribly dangerous, but it started to get done. Human-to-human direct transfusion involving donor artery to recipient vein anastomoses was one way to avoid the problem of blood pooling and coagulation, but it was also something born of desperation. The year was 1908, before understanding the coagulation cascade or the importance of vitamin K, and Mary Lambert was five days old and dying from Melena neonatorum, or hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Her father, Bellevue surgeon Adrian V.S. Lambert, approached Alexis Carell, 
a skilled vascular surgeon who was studying vascular anastomoses at the Rockefeller Institute. The two men concocted a plan to save Mary. They would attach Adrian Lambert's radial artery to his daughter's popliteal vein, and he would transfuse his blood into her that way. All accounts that I've read of this story say that it happened on a dining room table in Lambert's home on West 56th Street without any anesthesia. Because of Carell's success with curing hemorrhagic disease of the newborn this way, human vivisection laws were lifted in New York, and Carell went on to win the 1912 Nobel Prize in recognition of his work on vascular suture and the transplantation of blood vessels and organs. So great, another benefit of whole blood transfusion. Of course, today, newborns receive vitamin K at birth, and separation of whole blood into components allows for direct transfusion of plasma when needed, but we'll get there later. The problem is vascular surgery is no joke, and not all surgeons were skilled enough to quickly make artery vein anastomoses, so we needed more devices. In 1907, George Kreil published a paper entitled The Technique of Direct Transfusion of Blood in the 46th volume of the Annals of Surgery. In this paper, he described donors passing blood from one syringe into a cannula that could be connected to the recipient without suture. Direct transfusion still did require an on-hand supply of living and willing donors, though. And then in Britain, they started setting up these donor panels in which various people would be tested and they would volunteer to be at the beck and call of somebody who needed blood. Again, direct arm-to-arm transfusion. And then there were a few big roadblocks. So one was, of course, when Carl Landsteiner figured out blood groups in 1900. Mm -hmm. Now, it should be said, like Mendel, his work went unrecognized for about 20 years or so. So that was one of the things, the fact that if you had incompatible blood groups, you would kill the person. Carl Landsteiner, a physician, biologist, and immunologist, was an assistant in the Department of Pathological Anatomy at the University of Vienna in 1900. And he theorized that some people were becoming quite sick with transfusions because of the clumping of foreign blood in the vessels and the, quote, liberation of hemoglobin from foreign blood corpuscles. We call this hemolysis. His 1901 study was simple and elegant. He mixed the blood of himself and five colleagues and simply watched for agglutination. And he noted that some blood types didn't agglutinate at all, and some agglutinated with certain blood, but not others. And he named these type A, type B, and type Z patterns. Z later became type O, and then later on he would describe type AB in 1907. Though he ultimately won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for this work, blood typing didn't gain traction for about a decade after these studies were published. Ruben Ottenberg of Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, inspired by Landsteiner's work, performed cross-match transfusions on 128 people and published his work in the 1913 edition of JAMA. He wrote, the occurrence of agglutination between the blood of the donor and that of the patient need not be regarded as an absolute contraindication to transfusion, but non-agglutinative donors should be chosen whenever possible. One year after Ottenberg's work was published, World War I broke out. War, of course, is a bloody business. It's also unpredictable, and you might imagine that on a battlefield, direct arm-to-arm transfusion is not always practical. So again, we're back to thinking about ways to store blood and to stop clotting. Another thing was that the blood clotted constantly. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one of the drawings of Blondell with blood sort of spouting into a funnel. We know that can happen, the Mm -hmm. blood clots. So one of the things they did to try to get around the problem of blood clotting 
would be to coat the surfaces of the glassware with paraffin or other things to slow that down, mm -hmm. but still had to be done almost at panic-like speed. I got to see one of these paraffin or wax-coated devices with Dr. Sonny Zeke, hematologist and co-director of the Blood Transfusion Service of the Mass General Hospital. He's also quite the collector of historic blood transfusion devices. You have the uh, Vincent tube as well. Could you tell us what that is and when that was used? Sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's also exciting of some local historical interest in the building I'm sitting in. The Vincent tube is named for a surgeon whose name was Beth Vincent. He was a male with the name Beth Vincent. And this was a way to provide transfusion in more of a battlefield setting. So Beth Vincent was part of the American contribution to World War I and was part of a group of physicians who were stationed in Paris and other parts of Europe to try and deliver medical care to the front lines. Of course, wars have always advanced transfusion as a field because of the urgent need for transfusion. This was also a kind of a direct transfusion approach in which the donor and recipient had to be physically near each other. So Vincent developed this thing, which looks, it's, it's a glass object. It looks like a giant glass tube and has at its bottom a glass needle. It's actually quite sharp, even though it's made of glass. And Vincent's idea, he was challenged with the same problems that Blundell had almost a century before him. But his idea was that you could take off a cork at the top end of this big tube and pour molten paraffin wax into the tube. And then you rotated the tube to coat the inner surface of this glass tube with paraffin wax and let it then cool and seal. And so now you had a wax coated tube. And of course, paraffin wax would then block the contact of the donor blood with the glass. And so it slowed down the process of clotting. Paraffin doesn't completely inhibit clotting, but it certainly slows it down. So once you had this paraffin coated tube, it's a pretty simple, there's no moving parts in this thing. It's just a piece of glass. So it's suitable for kind of a battlefield circumstance. You could stick this into the donor and let the blood kind of bubble up the tube. And once you had a good 100 cc's or so, whatever you wanted to collect, you would simply take it out of the donor and then transfer it to the recipient, stick the needle in the recipient and let the blood flow in. Since it's glass, you can see where the level of blood is. So you have a direct visual protection against air emboli. There was also a little armature at the top where you could in fact apply a little positive pressure if you wished, a little plunger. So it was designed for shock, right? For a battlefield shock. So you could shoot the blood in rather quickly. It is limited in its volume. Of course, uh, you, you get like one tube full, but this, this thing probably holds 150 cc's easily. Certainly a resuscitating quantity of blood. Beth Vincent was an MGH doctor, as I mentioned, and this tube was made, at, it says it on the tube, it says Vincent tube made at the McAllister Glass Factory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was made in 1917. Because these are glass, they break. And so it's harder to find them today. You know, it's quite an unusual thing to see. There's an almost identical device, which is called the Clinton Brown tube, the KB tube. If you saw the pictures of the two of them, they'd look the same. And the Clinton Brown tube came from the Brigham. <laughs> <laughs> Old rivalries. <laughs> Old rivalries that persist to this day. And each, each of them, you know, spurring each other on to try and improve care as we do today. Absolutely. These paraffin devices weren't perfect. Blood could still clot inside. So in 1914, three physician scientists were working independently, trying to figure out how to stop blood from clotting in these tubes. 
Albert Huston in Brussels, Luisa Gote of Buenos Aires, and Richard Lewinson of Mount Sinai Hospital all independently observed that adding sodium citrate, an important chelator of ionized calcium, a critical element of the clotting cascade, was even better at preventing blood clotting than wax-coated tubing. Lewison was the first to publish this in 1915 in the Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics Journal, and so he's often credited with the discovery. Professor Starr and I touched on Lewison in our conversation. Lewison at Mount Sinai Hospital figured out that sodium citrate in certain pHs could actually delay the clotting of blood. So then it became possible to, again, with direct transfusion, transfuse blood from a recipient to a donor. They had various devices to take the blood from the arm of a recipient into the arm of a donor and have it last a little longer than before because of sodium citrate. In 1916, Americans Peyton Rouse and J.R. Turner described a solution made of citrate to chelate calcium and dextrose to support ATP generation and cell viability. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, they took the Harvard Medical Unit, which included two transfusionists, Professor of Hygiene Roger Lee and Corporal Oswald Robertson, a surgeon. This medical unit was dispatched to France from 1917 to 1918. Lee and Robertson used glass bottles with the Rouse-Turner solution and showed that blood could be kept in these bottles on ice without clumping for up to five days. Using this very primitive early blood bank, and they didn't even call it that, they could transfuse about 50 pints per day. Now, this is nowhere near an ideal volume for mass casualty situations like war. Robertson's descriptions of the events were grim. He wrote, by noon, the wounded began to arrive till we were simply deluged. The resuscitation ward was a veritable chamber of horrors. All we could do was to stop the bleeding and get the patients as comfortable as possible. I could transfuse an occasional one, but the majority has to take their chance without much treatment. Blood typing was also not widely used, and on top of the helplessness of watching wounded soldiers hemorrhage to death, Robertson also wrote of death due to hemolytic reactions on the battlefield. Do you think that the number of transfusions that were happening on the battlefield or around the battlefield in World War I was limited more so by the process or by the overall hesitancy to do this sort of new thing? It was so new, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to do something in battle is much harder than to do it in real life. So I think it was both. I don't think people were anti vaxy about it. Right. I just think they didn't know how to do it. You know, very yeah. few people really knew how to do it before World War I. It's right. a new technology when you think of it. In between World War I and World War II, a number of discoveries helped to increase the safety and practicality of transfusion. Dr. Zeke told me about some of the innovations in transfusion devices. Between the wars, a French physician named Louis or Louis Joubet, you know, introduced a device that he had patented in 1924, and it's called the Joubet tube, which tried to keep the process of transfusion simple, but made the apparatus a little more durable. And the Joubet tube consists of these two metal objects that fit together, and it's a really clever design. The way it's designed, it has a groove in the piston part that fits into the syringe. And so when you assemble the device and put the piston into the barrel of the syringe and kind of screw the whole thing together, what you're left with is this object with two arms, one on each side. And the way the geometry is such so that when you pull back the plunger, it draws blood from one arm. And then when you push in the plunger, it pushes the blood out the other arm. 
So although there's nothing swiveling in this thing, there's nothing rotating. It's not like a stopcock that you have to turn. All you really have to do is pull the plunger back and push the plunger in. And the geometry winds up drawing blood from the donor and then pushing it into the recipient. The syringes are quite small. They came, this is a 5 ml variety. They also came in 10 ml varieties, but that didn't matter because you could go back. It was reciprocating, right? You could go back and forth as many times as you wanted, you know, until the donor fainted. Then you knew that you'd probably done enough, right? <laughs> you know? So the advantage of this over like the Vincent tube, the Vincent was kind of one and done. You know, you filled up your glass bottle and then you gave it to the recipient and you had to go back to the donor and start all over again. This was really a direct connection through rubber tubing and needles between the donor and the recipient and really dead simple. All you had to do was push the plunger back and forth and you were able to then deliver blood to the patient. So these were very popular. This was designed for civilian healthcare, the Jubei tube. Huh? And the way it worked, if you were sick in 1924 and needed surgery that might require blood transfusion, your donor was wheeled into the operating room huh? and physically positioned on a gurney beside you. And your two arms were, you know, perpendicular to the body, but in alignment with each other so that the donor arm and the recipient arm were within inches of each other. And the operator stood between the donor and the recipient with his Jubei tube and was able to then transfer the blood back and forth. Another notable discovery included the identification of the rhesus antigens, which was helpful to further reduce hemolytic transfusion reactions and cross-matching started to become more of a standard practice. But certainly one of the more interesting stories that I heard involved cadavers in the Soviet Union. Professor Starr and I chatted about this. The really interesting thing was how that developed. Mm -hmm. So in the Soviet Union, it's a very big country, and they were very advanced in blood transfusion, and it was always donors on the hoof, as they called it. But the trouble with a country as big as the Soviet Union is if somebody is injured and bleeding out, the donor might be very far away. So they kept looking for a way around that. Mm -hmm. And they started experimenting with this notion of storing the blood, which actually nobody had done. So they would get some blood from a, first they experimented with dogs and they'd store the blood in a bottle with sodium citrate and find that they could lead out another dog and refill it, so to speak, with the new blood and it would survive. So finally, they were ready to try it on a human. And on a night in March in 1930 at the Sklifosovsky Institute, a young man had tried to commit suicide and he was bleeding out. And meanwhile, an older man in the next room had just died having been hit by a streetcar. So the doctors there thought this was time to give it a try. Mm -hmm. And they transfused the blood of the older man into the younger man and brought him back to life. This made him realize that the blood of a cadaver could really work. And if you wait a certain time after rigor mortis, but before the bacteria spread, the blood is usable. Mm -hmm. But obviously they couldn't store the cadavers. So they had this notion of storing the blood in bottles, in these blood transfusion depots. And actually the Soviets invented this. Mm -hmm. Some years later, Charles Drew, who we meet in a while, wrote a thesis of this. And a doctor named Bernard Fantas in Chicago thought, what a great idea. Let's keep the blood in bottles and we don't have to get people to come in. And at first they called it a blood transfusion depot. And then he thought, you know, people make withdrawals, they make deposits. So he invented this thing called the blood bank. So it was in 1937, finally, that the blood bank was invented. This is a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Just really in time for the war. World War II, as we all know, started in 1939. So we finally had blood banks in the late 1930s and World War II started. Now, one of the problems is that blood is perishable. At the time, it was only good for a few weeks. 
And they had to figure out what to do about this. And one of the other developments before the war was the understanding that blood could separate into plasma mm-hmm. and, and red cells and then and the Buffy coat. And the plasma kept better than blood, and it wasn't as sensitive as other factors. So on the eve of World War II, a group in New York started freeze-drying plasma and sending it to Britain for the bombing of London. Mm-hmm. And this was the enterprise that was headed by Charles Drew. Charles Drew was the first Black man to graduate from the Columbia Medical School. And he was one of these extraordinary people who always reminded me of Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. He was a great actor. He was a humanitarian. He was a natural leader. Just everybody loved him. And he was a brilliant scientist. So one of the deals with processing plasma is it's so protein rich that it gets infected very easy, like milk even more so. And in fact, the Brits called plasma liquid dynamite because right. if the slightest thing went wrong, you would kill the person. Mm-hmm. So Drew and and John Scudder set up a situation in New York in the hospital, and it was like a high-tech factory of today in which donors would give blood, the plasma would be spun off, and every single aspect of this had to be absolutely sterile and a closed system. And they started shipping plasma to Britain, and it was a great success. Dr. Drew was asked to lead the Blood for Britain program in 1941, and this program became what we now know as the Red Cross Blood Banking and Donation Program. In 1942, at major battles, one in every 10 men were receiving transfusions of up to three bottles each. General Eisenhower said at the end of the war, if I can reach all of America, there is one thing I would do, thank them for all the blood, plasma, and whole blood. It has been a tremendous thing. I was so excited to get the reflections of Dr. Yvette Marie Miller, one of the executive medical officers of the American Red Cross, about Charles Drew and the origins of the organization. So I'm Dr. Yvette Marie Miller, and I'm one of the executive medical officers for the American Red Cross. And so my focus is determining donor eligibility, handling donor adverse reactions, recipient adverse reactions, and notifying donors of infectious disease test results and any other test results that we might have. And then my other primary focus is on meeting the transfusion needs of patients with sickle cell disease so that, you know, we can ensure that we have adequate amounts of blood on the shelf that will closely match patients with sickle cell disease because that's what's called for with their particular condition. The work that Dr. Drew did was, again, just sentinel work, of course. It was related to a couple of different things. One, he certainly did work in terms of the process to separate red blood cells from plasma, again, which is the same process that we use today. But he also did work in terms of identifying certain antigens, identifying the complications that are associated with blood transfusion. Today, we use some of those same definitions. So his work was key in, you know, bringing the collection and processing of blood into the next century. Dr. Drew was just such a well-respected individual in the scientific community. And so everybody from every community understood that the work that he was doing was so incredibly important that his race didn't play that much of a part. And so because the work that he was doing was so key, he was absolutely the right person at the right time to be invited to be the chief medical officer of the American Red Cross. And so it was an incredible event for an organization like the American Red Cross to have an individual that was African-American have such a key position and such a high profile role. 
So it was a bright moment for Dr. Drew's family and for the African-American community. And it's likely the organization felt, you know, so empowered that they were really honoring the work that this man was doing, regardless of his race. So race wasn't an issue. It was the work, the important work that he was doing is why he became the level officer. A couple of really interesting things going on. Sure. And there was a new social development. This was the invention of the blood drive. Mm-hmm. That never existed before. Right. And, you know, the Red Cross would go to factories and the union people would line up at convents. This was a mass thing. And it was very interesting because when people are far from the battle and want to do something, it turned out the only two things they could give was being money or blood. Mm-hmm. Giving blood became a very personal thing. And they would actually put labels on the bottles and on the plasma as to who gave it to mm-hmm. personalize it even more. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, at one point I mentioned there was a headline in that some soldier received plasma and on the name of the bottle was Dwight Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. said this, this private received the blood of a general. <laughs> Another time, a guy was wounded in the Japanese theater and he was receiving freeze-dried plasma and he looked at the name on the bottle and it was him. And that a year before he had donated plasma and it came around on the other side of the world a couple of years later to him. Wow. In the late 30s, early 40s, we even start to see rotary technology used for transfusion. Dr. Zeke and I got to chat about such a device that was featured during the war years. And the name may sound very familiar. This was a book by Kilduff and DeBakey. And that name might ring true to many of the listeners. So this is, in fact, the Michael DeBakey, who went on to become one of the world's most famous surgeons involved in cardiac surgery and the initial use of cardiac surgery and cardiopulmonary bypass. And, yeah, this is the real deal, Michael DeBakey. But in 1942, he hadn't reached that level of fame yet. He was a younger physician and a surgeon. And you can see in this book, he's working out the details of how to deliver even greater volumes of blood faster. And he developed something which is called the DeBakey device. You can also tell when you explore this that he was not a person with a small ego. There's no doubt about that. And the DeBakey device, and I have one of these, I'm privileged to own one of these, is a very cool metal object, which is a rotary pump. This is a mechanical hand-cranked pump, you know, and you you turn the device and you can probably hear me clicking it. And it, it goes around and around. And with each click, a little counter tells you how many mLs you've delivered. And so you set up a a needle between the donor and recipient, and then you thread the tubing through this circular pump and you twirled it and you can go fast. Every one of those is an ML. So you can like kind of zoom along. Now the Bakey did not actually invent rotary pump technology, but he certainly promoted it and popularized it and saw it for its value. And of course, this manual rotary pump would later go on to become mechanized, right? It would become a mechanical electrically turning pump and would become the basis for the heart-lung machine, for all apheresis equipment, for all dialysis equipment, ECMO machines, you name it, right? Everything that we use today, which is a rotary pump to push blood around, has its kind of, as a forerunner, the handheld DeBakey device that is featured in his textbook, Kilduff and DeBakey on blood transfusion. 
Now, it might seem like DeBakey was doing everything in medicine since his name is literally everywhere, but he was certainly not the only innovator in transfusion medicine at the time. Professor Starr told me about how on Huntington Avenue, not far from where I work, Edwin Cohn was exploring how to fractionate plasma into protein concentrates. And also fractionation was developed. And that was, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the secret lab is what got me into this. Mm-hmm. So over in Harvard Medical School, a man named Edwin Cohn, mm-hmm. a biochemist, was running a semi-secret lab trying to understand blood derivatives. And he invented fractionation, mm-hmm. which blood was broken down to plasma and then to albumin and then to gamma globulins and a whole host of things. That's actually the foundation of a big part of the pharmaceutical industry. Right. But right. albumin, which they were able to ship around the world, you know, you could ship it in liquid form in a small bottle, infuse it. And don't forget the notion of transfusion wasn't just the oxygen carrying property of blood, but it was the fact that it maintained turgor pressure in your mm-hmm. blood vessels. Mm-hmm. So crush injuries, plasma worked, albumin worked. This was a huge, huge enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> so this became a massive industrial machine. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In terms of the processing, there were depots around the country, and we could get into how it was concentrated. And also in terms of a social movement, this was a new thing, and it took right. the country by storm. But not without a bit of controversy. If you know anything of American history, you know that racial segregation was a legislatively sanctioned social norm of the 1940s, and in some places, even 30 years beyond that. Hospitals, medical schools, and even this emergency Blood for Britain program were not exempt. One of the ironies of this was because Charles Drew was Black, he was not allowed to donate his blood to that enterprise. Right. So the armed forces were segregated at the time, and the Red Cross didn't know what to do about that because they thought, well, what about all these white Southern guys? Would they not want a Black person's blood? Nobody bothered to ask a white guy who was bleeding out on the battlefield, by the way, all we have is Black plasma. Are you cool with that? (laughs) Nobody would have denied that. So they, some blood banks actually kept separate white and black blood mm-hmm. and in plasma, because they had to pool it and put a lot of units together, it was impossible to keep it separate. So for the good of the enterprise, they asked him not to donate so the blood wouldn't be, quote, tainted in a way that would offend Southerners. You heard that correctly. Black and white blood were segregated. And to be crystal clear, there is not and never was any scientific basis for this policy. It was sociopolitically motivated and frankly, racist. In our next and last episode of the series, Blood Transfusions, Blood Politics, and Modern Practice, we will learn about the innovations that brought the process of blood transfusion into the modern era. But we will have to first take a deep dive into the politics of mid to late 20th century transfusion medicine. And this includes blood segregation on the basis of race and exclusions on the basis of country of origin or sexual orientation. Once again, I'd like to thank all of my guests, Professor Doug Starr, Dr. Sunny Zeke, and Dr. Yvette Miller. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, the United States is confronting a severe blood shortage. If you're interested in donating blood, you can go online at americasblood.org to find a local donation center near you, or you can contact the Red Cross directly. Go to redcrossblood.org and sign up, put in your zip code, and it will bring up blood drives that are close to that zip code so you can donate. And we have a wonderful blood donor app where when you download the app, you can actually use the app to make your appointments. And there's a lot of good information as well that comes through that app. We're still testing for COVID-19 antibodies, so you can get your antibody test results through the app. And then you can always call 1-800-RED-CROSS. 
Thank you all for listening to Hematopoiesis, a podcast by hematology trainees for hematology trainees. Till next time.